0: Hello and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, the Hoover Institution podcast on law and regulation. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined as always by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU. Hello, Richard. Hello. So our topic today is trade, the topic much in the news for the last year as the Trump administration has renegotiated NAFTA and declared a trade war with China. But Richard, I have some good news. Over the weekend, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin told Fox News, we're putting the trade war on hold, which is nice to hear. Uh, Now, of course, President Trump has said, quote, trade wars are good and easy to win. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I mean, I don't have many thoughts on that. Let me start the following way. I opened up the Wall Street Journal to get the latest news on the trade wars, and there are a couple of things that I think are of note. First is the stock market is level today uh, after yesterday's 300-point rise, which means essentially uh, there's no new news on this, and so what happens is things remain steady at the global level. Uh, the second thing are the two headlines on the left side of the uh, Wall Street Journal page, and the first of them says, U.S. and China edge toward a resolution of a trade stance off, which I regard as good news. And then the analysis below it says in trade war with U.S., China gets the upper hand. I have no idea as to which of these two stories is true or why. Uh, The first problem, of course, is that I don't believe in trade wars. I think that when Donald Trump said that trade wars are easy to win, he was in one of his more delusional states of mind. Uh, What happens is if you start to have a trade war, all of your sellers overseas are troubled and all of your buyers from overseas are troubled and all the people who first buy and then sell or sell and then buy are going to be troubled. Uh, so what happens is everybody who's in the market is opposed to this because trade is not one humongous deal um, in which we give something and they get something back. It doesn't have the same characteristics as the Iran nuclear deal, for example. And what you do is you have millions of sub-deals and every one of them turns out to be at risk if you decide to run this particular trade. War. This, I think, has some serious implications uh, for the way in which the domestic policies have played out. Uh, Trump is so much thinking about his base, that is, people whom he thinks have lost jobs to trade wars, that he forgets all the businesses who are in some part of his base, all of which are adamantly opposed then what you do is you add two and two together. And the second part of this two and two is all of these firms have workers. And if these firms are going to suffer, their workers are going to go to suffer. And so what happens is Trump has to realize that there's no surgical method available for him to say, I'm going to help the unemployed workers in Fort Wayne, Indiana, when their businesses have moved to Mexico, assuming that's all to be true, because he has to take down a lot of other people with him, because trade wars are contagious and they cannot be confined. So I think what's really happening is there's a battle inside the information inside the administration and with its major supporters outside the administration and my guess is even though labor at some point is always going to be somewhat protectionist even those guys shrink at the fact that this will become a huge humongous operation because many of their workers are in the export trade and they can't afford that particular law so the real question is whether or not Trump's instincts will continue to hold him if not then you may get a deal uh, there is this deal with whatever it is, ZBTC. Uh, ZTE company. There's talk that the Chinese are going to lower tariffs against American cars. Um, they should do all of that. But let's hope that the standoff is eased and it will be win-win. Uh, if it's like the analysis says that China's got the upper hand, then what we're still thinking is what form of protectionism is best. And Adam, I'll toss it back to you with the notion of, uh, in your reasonable mind, is there ever a case for protectionism if we get ourselves apart from the very tricky issues of national security?
0: Well, and I want to get back to national security before long. But when I think about these issues, I, I tend to think of them uh, from the perspective of somebody uh, like me who grew up in Iowa, where you have well, you yeah. have both manufacturing, right, that would love access to to Chinese markets. I grew up in a in a in a in a John Deere family, and I appreciate how important it is for U.S. manufacturing to be to have access to overseas markets. At the same time, agric- agriculture being so important in Iowa, I've seen the backlash and the risk that a trade war could have real harm for corn and soybean farmers in Iowa. So, I've, you know, I see both impacts and I've seen it my whole life. And so I tend to be a little bit ambivalent about this. My instincts are with you that the, that the best trade policy is a free trade policy. Um, but I hesitate because in the case of China, I think the question is less about what happens when the U.S. declares a trade war on foreign countries. And the question is, how, what do we do when foreign countries declare a trade war on us or, or have an undeclared trade war on us? I think it's clear that for years and years, China has not been an open market. Uh, and on top of that, it has not hesitated to manipulate its currency, uh, for favorable uh, you know to to favorably goose its economy in the short term, and we've also seen what China has done on intellectual property rights or the lack thereof in the country and so when you tie all of those issues and others together um and the fact that China has been as i said declaring if not declaring a trade war waging a trade war of sorts or a mercantilist policy against us for years, i sort of i have to pause and and I think that while Trump's approach is against my own pro free trade instincts. I can appreciate where he's coming from on this. So what do you make of of the those two issues the the intellectual property issue and the currency issue and And could those ever reach a point that justifies Uh, responsive action by the U.S.
1: Ah, and there's also the third one, uh, which is the protectionism from their side, which you also mentioned. Right. Well, I mean, this is, I think, the general position of trade economists. Proposition number one, if everybody plays in accordance with the rules, the traffic flows smoothly. But if somebody crosses over into the lane and starts to cause a smash-up, then everybody has to decide what's going to be the second best response. And that's why I think you're right to have some degree of ambivalence. Let me sort of sort these things out um, in the separate ways. First of all, uh, with respect to the protectionism coming from their side, um, I understand why for particular firms this is extremely uh, frustrating, uh, but I also think that there are a lot of benefits that we get from Chinese protectionism um, and subsidies. They want to protect their particular markets. They're making themselves less efficient than all the other markets in the world. So what sales we may lose to China are probably going to be sales that we can gain to somewhere else where the Chinese will be less effective competitors. It's also the case when they start subsidizing their stuff, the appropriate response is to buy as much subsidized goods as you can, and then when you put them into the international market again, or even into the domestic market, you're going to get some sort of gain. So my own instinct, which is not that of the parties on the front line, is to take the broader perspective and to think that if they want to play the subsidy game, certainly just let it run and take advantage of it, and those companies that are hurt by the subsidy should diversify their. Strategies and those companies that benefited from it should take advantage, just a little bit like predation. If somebody wants to sell you goods at below cost, the proper response is not to sue them in the antitrust laws. What it is in effect is to buy large. So on that one, I don't know. Well, Richard, is on that a-
0: on that one, really quick, if I just yeah, if I sure. interject, um, I understand that in the long run, the company or the country that runs policy like that is setting itself up for some for some harm, but. Um, you know, so, it, it, but it reminds me of 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 the line was it Kansas line that in the long yes. run we're all dead or the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. I mean, if a if a country like China sees not just short run advantage but also an opportunity to gain a, an advantage in industries where there's real network effects and a real first first mover advantage, and if China can get in on on technological industries. Uh, that, that really, and i don 't know if it's, if it is doing this, but if it were to do that and to try to to, to, to goose policy to get the short run upper hand on policies where having an early lead is, is a good thing and, and a structural thing. Um, Is then then responsive action justified?
1: Well, look, you've got to break it down into two parts. There's the protectionist part, which prevents you from getting your goods in, and there's the subsidy part, which helps them get their goods out. I do not see how any company gets itself a technological advantage by playing the infant industry protectionist game. Uh, What they are doing is they're going to deprive themselves of some key technologies that they might need in order to uh, work this stuff. On the subsidy side, I think what I said before is true. You buy what they have. Now when you're going into war with them, uh, what you can do is you can use your subsidized goods and services to compete with them because they're going to have to pay not only the services for the stuff that they are making, but they're going to have to pay the cost of the stuff that they're going to you. And one of the reasons why predation turns out to be a very weak strategy in the antitrust domain is that it's not only one guy who can buy all the stuff that's being sold at a very low price Other people in other nations can start to do it. So in the end, there's never been a successful strategy of subsidization and predation. And I don't believe that you're going to get one in this particular case. Now, what the problem is, of course, you're an American car manufacturer and the Chinese are putting a 25% tariffs on this. And you're absolutely furious and you're absolutely right to be furious. My own sense is I think what you want to do is to hit them very, very hard with a bunch of publicity campaigns, painting them as outliers. I don't think what you want to do is to take other actions. It would certainly, for example, Adam, I think be foolish if you say, oh, well, they got to pay a subsidy. So the United States Treasury is going to back these cars and give them a a subsidy in order to overcome the protection on the other side. So I think, in effect, in this case, Grin and Barrett, the political economy is exactly the opposite, as you say – because the companies that are directly affected are the ones who are going to be marching to the White House to the Congress. And the sort of diffuse positive effects, which I think outweigh the negative effects, are not located in any particular industry. So you have the standard public choice dilemma. Concentrated losers tend to influence policy more than diffuse winners. But I mean, I'm trying to do this as a kind of an abstract intellectual, and I want to stand my ground and I want to help them. Uh, how would I help these guys? I'd go to the WTO. I would start the broadcast one way or another on this stuff and also you haven't gone to this is i do think very strong responses are appropriate to anybody who steals intellectual property and if you're worried about network industries that almost invariably involves internet you know in um involves various kinds of technical properties of one sort or another of IP. And so the question I'm going to throw back to you is <clears throat> if we want a surgical strike against their flagrant disregard of all trade secrets and all other forms of intellectual property, how do you think we ought to proceed? So for once I'm going to be the interlocutor.
0: Well I don't think you can do a surgical strike on this. I think it's one of those one of those situations where the choice is between allowing the market to sort itself out or reaching for the bluntest tool for the for the the tool at hand, which happens to be a blunt one. Um, If President Trump's stirring up of controversy over the Chinese trade issue is what opens the door to meaningful IP reform with China, something that there have been calls for for years and years, and there's never been any progress on it. But if this is something that could actually open that door, then. I'll have to sit back and and, and sort of wonder whether it wasn't actually a worthwhile exercise. And of course, I think there's a broader, surrounding all of this, at least in the case of China, is that the the fight with China isn't just about trade and and intellectual property. It's also bound up in all the other geopolitical, geostrategic issues Mm -hmm. that the Trump administration or any administration has to deal with right now with China. There's trade, there's uh, China's uh, reach into the South china sea its, its, its influence over over uh, North Korea, its relationship with Taiwan and with Japan, and so on and so while we can have not just an uh, you know a, a limited debate on trade or, or an abstract debate on on trade as a standalone issue, there are no standalone issues in our government, and the administration has to balance a lot of things um, and so i'm i 'm even more willing to humor the Trump administration. Uh, using trade as a tool of geostrategic, geopolitical policy um, when it's using it in conjunction with these other issues that it needs to grapple with regarding China.
1: Well, you're certainly right about that. And this gets back to uh, ZTE, the big giant telecom company. Um, One of the ways in which you can really hit somebody very hard is is to essentially make sure that when they want to get American imports for components – are uh, they going to have to pay through the nose to block them? So what they did is they put the ban on them. And you know somebody showed me the back of one of these phones, and you know sixty percent of the components in the Chinese phones are uh, stuff that are made by American companies, most notably Qualcomm and so forth. Uh, and you could do one of two things: uh, you can essentially say we're not going to allow you to buy any of this stuff, or we're going to allow you to buy, it, but you're going to have to pay extremely primitive taxes. And then we're going to take those taxes and we're going to distribute it to all those American companies whose royalties have been stolen by you. And that seems to be the one card that he's prepared to give up. So what makes this odd is that I would think that targeted solutions was proposed. And then he says it's going to cause job in China. There's the president going again with his crazy notion that somehow are the local jobs or what ought to be driving trade negotiations, where I think everybody else who understands this business says, you get the trade right. The jobs will start taking care of themselves. You bring the jobs into this business and you'll never get the trade right. So I I think that his Department of Commerce may have been better on that. And I certainly agree that, as always has been the practice, that there is a heavy national security blanket that has to be thrown over the sales of sensitive technologies, even to our friends who may transcript them to our enemies, and certainly to our enemies who may use them against them. So there's no dispute there. Uh, The question about North Korea and um, the question about the South China Island, again, you know, you're right about these humongous problems. We do need the Chinese help. On the other hand, the Chinese needs our help because they do not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons any more than we do. Because what it does is it reduces the influence that they have and makes uh, North Korea a more powerful player in the – East Asian theater, and that's not something that they're really very keen about. So, you know, we do have some allowances. As with respect to the island that they're building up, which has been condemned in every conceivable form in international law. I really think what you have to do is first build up your navy, and secondly, you have to go into what they claim as territorial waters. It's absurd to let them build this pinpoint in the middle of the South China Sea, and then draw a huge circle of 200 miles around it, and saying, hey, we own the pinpoint one square mile, or we manage to get all of these hundreds of thousands of miles um, out there, and I think you have to just challenge them on that, and the theory is in all of these cases, if they're doing something wrong in South China, challenge them in South China. If they're doing something wrong in Korea, challenge them on that. So the strategy, I think, notwithstanding the interconnections being so evident, are exactly the opposite. What you do is you keep every one of these struggles in its own theater in order to reduce the interdependence amongst them. And if you could do that, you may get some clarity on the trade issue. So uh, do I win your diplomatic prize award for the year or am I just being hopelessly naive?
0: No, you'll get my, my own personal Nobel prize. It's uh, awarded it at the end of the year. Thank Congratulations.
1: Uh, well, we'll go to Oslo and, and, and do it right.
0: Well, before we get there, you know, having already touched on North Korea, let's continue the tour through the old access of evil and talk for a minute about Iran. Um, this you and I were, were, were chatting beforehand a little bit about, about the risk that new sanctions on Iran, uh, could, could result in in sanctions on Western European companies and others who do business with Iran. So once again, tying together the national security issue and the trade issue, what do you make of all that?
1: Well, I mean, I'm a little bit frightened by all of this stuff. Let's go back and see what are the specific responses and the general responses. On the general side, uh, Brett Stevens first launched the figures, and I'm sure they're correct. Uh, that uh, the sort of German trade with the United States is something like 720 or 750 billion dollars, not small change. The amount of trade that they have with the folks in Iran is around 25 billion dollars. If we say them or us, uh, given the fact that you got a 25 a 30 to 1 ratio. We're going to prevail over that particular battle. Uh, But what that does is it whets your appetite to do this again under circumstances where the numbers may not be as favorable and calamity could ensue. So I am very uneasy about playing that particular card um, to the extent that it's only a threat and it seems to work. You know, congratulations in the short run. But as you reminded us, right, the long run is much more murky if you're going to play this kind of policy. And so you have to be extremely careful in the way. In which you do it i don't regard this as completely illegitimate because i think every time somebody decides to trade with the iranians you're giving them more money in their treasury to stoke mayhem everywhere else and i think the europeans bear an enormous burden for being so soft as was obama on all of the red line issues and all the issues of oppression in iraq and syria and even in iran uh, uh, that you know, we have a lot of penance to pay for the stuff that's there. So I do not want that as my first best thing, but I can't rule it out for the reasons that you stated. On the other hand, you know, there are all sorts of currency. Uh, connections going through banks, and Treasury seems to have a pretty good handle on what these are. And if you manage to have a much more localized response, A, it will be more effective, and B, it will have less collateral damage. And so my emphasis is to probably start on those things, and it seems to me that that's what's going on. The other thing I think on Iran, which the administration is doing right, is you cannot play carrots alone, rather sticks alone, um, which is what we've done. You have to offer them carrots, and so, you know, the argument that uh, was put forward by, I think it was Pompeo the other day, is, look, if they want to basically face this kind of serious reaction, their economy is in disarray because the mullers, whatever they may know about divine issues, they're not really very good at running a complex modern economy. Uh, inflation's getting out of control. There's domestic unrest and so forth. You can't solve that particular problem if you want to start throwing around bombs in Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, and so forth. Uh, you take that off the table and not only will we let anybody else trade with you, we'll trade with you and we'll do even better than that. We'll go in there and try to help you figure out how you can straighten out this mess of an economy that you have to have. And, you know, international relationships are without law on top of it, sort of like the mafia. And the example that I always like to give is if you're running the mafia, you promise somebody really dreadful consequences if they don't cooperate, but you also pay them if they do. Uh, because in order to get the biggest spread that you want between your desired and undesired action, you have to be doing both carrots and sticks. And so one of the reasons I'm slightly comforted by the uh, maneuvers is I think post the breakdown of the treaty about 10 days ago, I think Pompeo and Bolton have been playing it right. And if we continue to both put the olive branch out there and the thing on the other side – Put yourself in the positions of the Europeans. What are they going to tell these people? Keep fighting, guys. We won't be able to send you anything. But you have to make sure that the Americans aren't the imperialists. Or they're going to say, for God's sakes, get yourself a deal on this stuff so we could resume trade. I think, in effect, that this is a very clever strategy, and I I think that it ought to continue. And I know, again, you know, I'm something of a contrarian. I've always thought of you as not being mainstream, uh, but closer to the mainstream than the rebellious richard.
0: Well, I will say, notwithstanding everything I I said a little bit ago in favor of, 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 of trade policy. It is a little ironic that the Iran sanctions issue arose at the exact same moment that the Trump administration was trying to raise the, our own country's walls to foreign trade. In a way, uh, trade restrictions, restrictions on imports are a form of sanctions that a country imposes upon itself. Um And I, I wish more folks would draw that connection between what we're trying to impose on Iran and what we're trying to impose on ourselves. Um the other place where this is becoming a big issue, or it has been since President Trump began campaigning for office, is, is here in North America with NAFTA and calls to reopen uh, the NAFTA the NAFTA agreements. And I remember this is one thing I do remember growing up in Iowa when NAFTA uh, when NAFTA first came into existence. You saw small manufacturing leaving; um, the big manufacturing stayed in place, uh, but small manufacturers, at least some, did leave, and and. I saw firsthand the impact that can have on communities and on towns, and that's probably what originally sensitized me to the issue years and years ago. but I have to admit watching you know two decades later three decades later, NAFTA seems to have been in many ways a great success and uh, not just in terms of trade policy but in terms of trying to knit the continent together diplomatically and to raise the Mexican standard of living such that that the United States is not as attractive a place, it seems to me a wealthy Mexico is the best immigration policy we could have for those who are concerned about levels of immigration into the united states i 'm not one who shares those concerns so much, but for those who do you 'd think you 'd want a wealthier mexico and so i 've just been baffled uh, by the way that the Trump administration has has beaten up on the NAFTA agreement even though the NAFTA agreement in many ways serves so many of the Trump administration's own stated policy interests.
1: Well, I could not agree with you more on this one. Um, I I think he's downright perverse on many of these particular issues, and he should be ashamed of himself for the kind of effort to play brinksmanship with this treaty. And I think a lot of it goes back to the question of how you draw inferences when you start to see the initial treaty going. Uh, There's no question that there were many American firms that shut down their shops in Iowa, Idaho, Illinois, and so forth, and decamped to Mexico. Uh, But it's wrong to assume that if They did not decamp to Mexico. All those businesses would remain exactly where they were because at the same time that you had the mass exodus going south of the border, you had a mass exodus from the Rust Belt states and note the name that we use for them, uh, to the Southern Bloc. So people are also opening up plants in Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, Texas, and so forth, because they have a much more hospitable climate. So, um... If these guys did not go to Mexico after NAFTA, there's nothing which says that they wouldn't have gone to some other location in the United States. That's certainly been the case with respect to the auto industry and the tire industry and all the ancillary stuff. Uh, they are right-to-work laws and low-tax spaces in a variety of states, and so people are marching into South Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, and so forth. The UAW has never been able to win a union election there because these guys have realized uh, that they may in the short run have a huge strike that will... Cost them dearly, get some wage increase which won't quite offset the loss, then find out that the facilities are going to be shut down or, or shrunk in terms of their size, and they will be much the worse off if they're taking a high risk. And it turns out low return strategy, that's the history of the UAW in the North. Why anybody would want to follow in the South if they have any knowledge of this is beyond my comprehension. So that's the first part of this thing. They got the causation wrong. Many of these businesses would have died or gone elsewhere even if it turns out there had been no NAFTA. The other thing, of course, is it's easy to mention the class of Coldings. What about the plant openings? That is, you know, it turns out the Mexican market is open. Uh, we have a somewhat of a, a $20 billion trade deficit with them. It's trivial in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't matter anyhow. Uh, Now we have American firms that are selling there and American firms who are distributors buying from there and giving it to American consumers. Um, It's always a mistake to look at the visible casualties of a trade war and to ignore the um, invisible beneficiaries of those kinds of arrangements. And if you now look at the employment levels, you know, Trump has been very good for the most part on domestic reform in terms of deregulation, lower taxes and so forth. I think he's on sound ground there. All of a sudden what you start to see is now, hey, wanted signs. It's not just signs out there. Uh, People are offering signing bonuses for people who relocate from one town to another, wage premiums, benefits to people who bring one of their friends in, free job training programs and so forth. Uh, You should declare victory on this particular front and say that the way in which we get new jobs is to essentially make sure that we continue to export and import under the NAFTA trees. I could not agree more with this. And I just wish the president would understand that so much went wrong before he came in office, was attributable to the dreadful Obama policies, which were anti-free trade in the domestic market, particularly on labor union issues and also on general regulatory issues. And deregulation at home actually works. I don't think there's anything more powerful proof of that than what has happened. And also, if you compare the state stuff. All the movement is from the high regulatory, high tax states into the low regulatory states. So I'm sitting now here in the state of Illinois, uh, which if it elects Mr. Pritzker, is going to have a billionaire lead it down to the road to ruin. Our taxation burdens are very high. Our general regulatory structure is very bad. The state has become a hopeless laggard is against its competition. And the local folks here, you know what they want to do to stop this? They want to have a progressive tax. That will solve the whole problem, At
0: Well, I think it's it's good then that you split your time, not just in Illinois, but in, in the deep red states of California and New York. It helps you avoid a lot yes, of the that, problems. That's
1: right. As I said, I vote my political preferences where I choose to work. Um, uh, but it is, it's scary. It's very scary as
0: somebody who lives and works in all three states. You mentioned the ZTE issue with, with China. Um, we've been talking about trade. There is the related but somewhat separate issue of foreign direct investment at in the United States. The issues that are regulated at the federal level by what we call CFIUS. The it's the Interagency Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States that can veto uh, foreign acquisitions of of strategic or critical domestic uh, infrastructure when there seems to be a national security problem raised by that foreign acquisition. The classic case being, say, um, uh, you know China. Uh, buying a telecom company that has strategic yeah. tele- telecom assets, and on the other hand, you've seen you've seen how this can go perhaps wrong. It wasn't too long ago that Sifia's vetoed was it? Uh, Qatar or Dubai wanted to buy uh, port port facilities in the southern United States, yes. Dubai Ports World, and Sifia's intervened and blocked that on strategic uh, grounds or national security grounds in the aftermath of 9/11 and the Iraq War. Um, I think the if I recall correctly, the real story behind all of that was that the the so-called national security concerns were in large part trumped up by a domestic competitor or stakeholder who is dissatisfied with the sale. And so you can see how lodging that much power over foreign investment in such a, a politically accountable or politically responsive body like CFIUS could be a good thing, could be a, a, a horrifically bad thing. Uh, what do you what, Do you have any strong views out of the way on that?
1: well um, first of all, I want to say amen, men because I think that this is a constant issue in every trade uh, when we started to keep out the Chilean apples because of their contamination with law, it was exactly another use or abuse of the uh, protectionist policy in this case against infestation, which was used to block superior products coming in uh, and so the same thing can happen under these kinds of boards and Let me start to explain just structurally why there 's an enormous difference with respect to the poor ports on the one hand and the IP on the other. Suppose you get these guys and they're from Dubai and for some reason or another, all of a sudden when the ports are starting to come into place, they want to play tough and obstruct American shipping in a time of crisis. You just take the place over. Uh, These assets are in the United States. You boot those guys out. You put it into trusteeship and you run the things and you give them a residual profit so that they can get some money out of this while you keep the control. On the other hand, if it's the intellectual property that's going to a foreign investment company, right, Um, and you now are in serious trouble, there's no way you could hold that thing back. There's no domestic counter strategy that you can play. So I'm much more concerned with the um, exportation of intellectual property property. Um, which once it's gone is gone forever uh, and trade secrets and IP and everything else under these circumstances than I am with respect to people who want to make direct physical investments in the United States so uh, just to finish the loop the third case that came up on national security was again one of these kind of Trump fantasies that you just wince when you see it all of a sudden uh, we're starting to put um, tariffs handsome tariffs on aluminum and steel coming in from Canada and from Western Europe I mean if he wanted to to be, you know, this is the crazy art of the deal stuff, Um, fine, but it's a very dangerous strategy. What somebody is trying to figure out, is there any national security interest in doing this? The answer is it's so bizarre that it should be a shame to ask. So one of the things that Trump should do right now in order to diffuse um, various kinds of tensions with our Western- Western allies um, is to announce that he's just removing all of these tariffs uh, because we're not playing the anti-competitive game in order to make the steel workers and domestic producers happy. And, and this, I think, is one of the real dangers in international trade. And I, I think you'd agree with this, is that when it comes together and you're an embattled industry like American steel, there's no labor management conflict. They're both on the same side of the protectionist mm-hmm. game. And it's that unification uh, that makes them uh, so dangerous. So I, I think, in the end, you've got the right conceptual framework. And what you really have to do is have people in the administration who understand how to make these kinds of trade-offs. You can't simply say, I'm not going to do anything uh, with respect to a uh, direct foreign investment. The stakes are too high. But boy, oh boy, doing it wrong and doing it right is sometimes a very close case. But in sometimes they're no-brainers. And the Port Authority was an illustration of justice.
0: Now, Richard, we're running out of time. But I, just one last point I want to raise. Uh, you know, I look back at American history so- on this. And some of my very, very favorite Americans, Hamilton, Lincoln, Clay, they all believed in the American system, which at the time called for tariffs, called for barriers to trade in what they saw as the United States' long-term strategic interests. And so I'm curious for somebody like you who is so skeptical of, of trade policy along those lines, do you think they were wrong then or were they right then and just wrong now?
1: I think they were wrong then, and I think it actually created all sorts of very strange situations. Let's do a little comparison. Um, one of the great achievements of the American Union was that they tried to make the United States into a free trade zone, uh, so that state barriers by import and export tax, for example, would be stopped. Uh, they also, by the way, um, remember they had a free trade policy in terms of selling things overseas. and You could not impose a tax on exports, which sounds just like Donald Trump, and I think that was fine. Uh, On the question of why you want to stop the imports, I I think that this becomes a genuine catastrophe uh, because of the kind of factional interest that you mentioned before. Uh, So before the Civil War, if you start imposing high tariffs, the northern manufacturers are going to get a free market to sell to the southern farmers, um, and you're going to have a factional war coming out of this stuff. Uh, So on that issue, my view is generally speaking, I'm much more in favor of unilateral disarmament, that is, uh, having the same kind of prohibition on tariffs to stuff coming into the United States as on bans on things going out of the United States, subject to, of course, the amorphous contagion and national security issues. Now, the question you have to ask, is these things administrable? Well, under the Dormant Commerce Clause, generally speaking, the courts will enforce a free trade zone but there has been a consistently enforced and narrow exception, Maine v. Taylor is the key case, uh, so that I can't uh, sell my fish into Maine waters if it turns out they're going to eat all the local species, which is a serious kind of concern. So I think that you can do it. I think that these guys were, were generally wrong. I think what they thought mistakenly is that if you create this barrier you will start having American dynamism growing. Uh, But um, this was before Ricardo wrote, but the Ricardo equivalence theorem is extremely powerful. You start putting a tariff on stuff coming into the United States, one of the consequences is it makes your currency more expensive uh, than the other guy's currency, which means that it's harder for you to sell overseas. Um, So it turns out that tariffs, given this secondary effect, have negative effects on you as a seller, even if you have no export tax. And I mean, that Ricardian point I think is so absolutely critical uh, that one has to realize that even as the situation becomes multilateral and much more complicated, um, uh, the principle of non-separation, which you stress multiple times, certainly applies um, to the question of whether or not you can separate tariffs from currency. And if you remember, when we started this discussion, the first question you asked is about Chinese manipulation of of, of, of basically of its monetary system. We didn't talk about it at great length, but I think the answer is uh, you can start to play those games for a little bit for a while, uh, but then you start running up against speculation against you as people realize that the thing is unsustainable. And so it becomes a little bit like uh, uh, the Bretton Hicks. What's it? Bretton Hicks? I can't even remember. Uh, the Bretton Woods. <laughs> Bretton Woods. That's a, The Bretton Woods situation where I remember as a boy in the 50s growing up watching the pound get it to power, and all of a sudden it was no longer but there were huge losses in an effort to try to prop this thing up until there was this one discontinuous revaluation. And generally speaking, I think everybody is now in agreement that flexible exchange rates that vary daily – Are a much more efficient way to use trades. And if private parties are unhappy about the currency risk, we know what they do. They hire a financial expert and they buy derivatives of one kind or another so they can insulate the financial risk privately without having to destroy it publicly. Whereas what Bretton Woods did is it just set the wrong system in place. It wasn't the Versailles Treaty, uh, but it was a Big, big mistake. So, no, I, I, I don't think that I'm a f- fan of Hamilton, Lincoln, Clay, and so forth on any of these issues. I, you know, they had other compensating virtues. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but this was not one of their finest hours. Well,
0: Richard, on on this podcast, we managed to cover, by my count, Ricardo, Keynes, Hamilton, Lincoln, Clay, Manukin, and Trump. So we basically covered the waterfront. Uh, This is probably a good time to to wrap it up. So thank you, everybody, for joining us on Reasonable Disagreements. Be sure to check out the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, including Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, Area 45 with Bill Whalen, and, of course, The Libertarian with with, uh, Richard Epstein. Until next time, thank you for joining us. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.